I were to ask you to list for me your top five scripture verses, scripture passages, wonder what they might be. Uh, I'm sure for some of you it might be John 3.16. It's one that we all uh, learn very early on and becomes kind of a staple of Christian faith and Christian hope. God loves us, that he offers us eternal life, we believe in Christ, and so forth. Um, some of you may go to the book of Romans, maybe Romans chapter 8, uh, with uh, the great discourse there, or Romans chapter 12, we're more than overcomers, nothing can separate us, and all of those ideas that are there in Romans. Maybe you go to 1 Corinthians, go to chapter 15, with the, the doctrine of the resurrection, um, and how Paul highlights the emphasis there, and the priority there. Others may go to passages like Philippians, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, or something along those lines that is a passage that's come to mean a lot to you in terms of how you deal with life, how you approach life, how you um, understand your relationship with God. Others would go to, uh, I'm sure, the, the crucifixion passages of the Gospels and the resurrection, the hope that's expressed there as Christ rose from the grave. I wonder how many of you would go to 2 Samuel chapter 7. How many of you would go to our passage that is our focus today? And yet, I'm going to make the case this morning that it's probably one of the most significant passages in all of Scripture. Now, understand when I say that, that I'm not saying that some passages are important and other passages are not important. Okay, I'm not trying to suggest that, you know, that you know some parts of the Scripture of scripture or the Bible can be placed to the side or something like that. Um, that's not what I'm communicating at all. What I'm trying to suggest, though, by a significant passage is a passage that helps us better understand all the other passages. It helps us kind of understand who God is and helps us understand who we are and how God has planned things and plotted things. And I would say 2 Samuel chapter 7 certainly falls right in the middle of that description. We've been moving through the idea of uh, the promises of the Old Testament as they pertain to Jesus and who he is. We've looked at uh, Genesis chapter 3. It's the one, he's the one who would come to, to crush the head of the serpent. Fully man, uh, an extension of God's work through humanity there. We've looked at the call of Abram, the promises that are expressed there. We've looked at the prophecies of, of Balaam and the, the expressions of Jacob concerning Judah. And we've seen these pictures, these, these images of who the Savior is. But today's passage doesn't really focus as much on the nature of the Savior, uh, as we'll see. We'll return to that more next week and in, in subsequent weeks. But today it really looks more at the nature of the promise, God's promise to humanity, and what that looks like, and, and how that, that plays out. And where we find ourselves in 2 Samuel chapter 7 is right in the middle of David's reign. Uh, in fact, the passage tells us early on that it's that period in David's reign where he has come to a time of rest. He has accomplished much of what God has laid before him, much of the things that God has, has uh, called him to. He has solidified his position as king. He has uh, solidified his position in terms of authority over all of Israel, north and south. 
doing what he can to bring in those people from the northern tribes who weren't so crazy about him um, being the king since he was from the south, uh, moving the capital to Jerusalem, bringing the ark to Jerusalem, doing all sorts of things that were significant to, to really um, bring his kingdom to the point to where now Scripture says he, he's in this period of rest. And that's one of the most dangerous positions that we can find ourselves in, is that, that position of, of satisfaction. We've done what we were supposed to do. For some people, that kind of set, settles in when you enter into those retirement years. I've done what I've, what I've set out to do. You know, I've, I've lived a good life. I've contributed to society and those sorts of things. Sometimes people get into that mindset, and they just kind of walk away from responsibilities. Others find it... Um, and other periods in their life, maybe graduation from college. You know, you get to you get to that point, you're like, okay, I got my degree. I can kind of kick back for a little bit of time now. Or or some other milestone in your life. You know, maybe you get married. Okay, I'm married, I'm good to go for the rest of my life now. I don't know um, what may lead you to that kind of mindset or that kind of perspective. But being at that place of rest, being at that pace, that place of accomplishment can be a very dangerous situation. And and David is Indeed, danger. We're going to see in the next couple chapters that um, he makes some really poor choices. In chapters 10 and 11, we, we see the story of him and Bathsheba uh, that, that plays out there. And, and there's, there, there's those significantly poor choices that he makes toward the end of his, his ministry, his reign. But at this point, he's at this place of rest and he's looking for something to do. That's his nature. That's his character. And the thought that pops into his head is, I know I'll build God a temple. I have a house. I have a palace. I have a kingdom. All God has is that tent. You know, that, that, that tabernacle that's been around for all these years and so forth. That's, that's all he has. He deserves something better. He deserves something bigger. He deserves something grander. I'm, I'm going to do that. And, and initially... The text here in chapter 7 tells us that the prophet Nathan um, agrees. He says, he says, do whatever's on your mind for the Lord is with you. There in verse 3. It's a good idea, king. It's a great idea. But then God comes to Nathan and says, you know what? Go tell David, not such a great idea. Not what I want. Not what I need. And, and in some ways he kind of kind of squashes, I guess, David's dream there of building this temple. And there's different motivations for why he does that. We, we learn from other passages that, that part of the motivation is that David is a man of war. God does not want a man of war building his temple. Uh, other places we find that um, David's actions with Bathsheba are, in fact, um, disqualifiers uh, for what is what he desires to do here and so forth, even though that's still in the future at this point. I think, obviously, God's mindful of that uh, in this perspective. But he says to David, that's not what I wanted. That's not what I need. And you can imagine at that time, at that moment, that David's kind of depressed. You ever wanted to do something for somebody, and you really pour your heart into it, or you put a lot of thought into it, and you do it, and they're just, like, not that impressed with it? Yeah. And, and um, that, that hurts, you know. There, there's, some, there's some doubt. There's some 
problems that sometimes arise in that. I remember when Christy and I were, were first married. Um, one of Christy's gifts, as you all know, is cooking. Okay, And um, she thought, being newlyweds and so forth, one of the things she, had, she needed to do for me was, was to cook lots of desserts. Um, now, early on in our marriage, I was not a dessert person. I, I didn't like desserts much at all. Um, now, I never really communicated that to her. should have. But I didn't really communicate to her. But she would, she would cook these fantastic cakes and so forth, and they would sit on the counter and they would go bad because I just didn't eat cake. It's just not something I did. And uh, that caused a little strain early on because she was doing these things for me, expressing her love for me, and I'm like, that's great, but that's not what I wanted. I never asked for that or anything. And we had to learn how to work through that and, and how to communicate better, as so often the case in marriage early on. But there have been other times where I've done things for her or done things for our kids or done things for churches that I've served or whatever, and people are just like, yeah, okay, great, whatever. And I imagine that's where David is at this point. Because God sends back word through Nathan, Man, that's not really what I want. But then God does something that only God can do. He instills hope. He instills a sense of wonder and awe at what he's going to do through David. And he expresses what is considered the central messianic passage in all the Old Testament. So follow along with me, if you will. We'll begin reading in verse 8, chapter 7. God is speaking to Nathan, telling him, this is what I want you to say. So now this is what you are to say to my servant David. This is what the Lord of armies says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have destroyed all your enemies before you. I will make a great name for you, like that of the greatest on the earth. I will designate a place for my people Israel and plant them so that they may live there and not be disturbed again. Evildoers will not continue to oppress them as they have in the past. Ever since the day I ordered the judges to be over my people Israel, I will give you the rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you, the Lord himself will make a house for you when your time comes and your rest with your fathers, or and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up after you your descendant who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will discipline him with a rod of men and blows from mortals. But my faithful love will never leave him, as it did when I removed it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure before me forever, and your throne will be established forever. Now, as you read that passage, if you're at all familiar with uh, the biblical text, the biblical narrative, and where this all heads. The, the one who, that he's mentioning there, when he talks about this one who's coming 
from your very body and who will build this house for me. That is a reference to David's son Solomon. Solomon's not born yet. Um, again, he's a couple chapters down uh, the road here, but this is a promise that God makes to David that I'm going to continue your line through this one, this one who's coming, this one who will build my temple. But as we've already seen in, in many of the promises, that as God focuses in on or as the individual focuses in on a certain person there that's present, Jacob focusing in on Judah and so forth, he has something greater in mind, something grander in mind, something bigger in mind, some plan, some future. And, and this becomes highlighted here for us, becomes known for us here with this mention, this discussion of what? That your house and kingdom will endure before me forever. Now, how is that going to be possible? How can David's line, how can David's kingdom, how can David's throne continue on forever? It has to be somebody that's more than Solomon. It has to be somebody that's more than the, the, the human descendants that would come from David. It has to be somebody who himself is eternal. Somebody who himself is on the throne to this day. And that's Jesus. But in this promise, we see the essence of, of who God is. We see the essence of the promise. We see the essence of the nature of our relationship. And the first thing I think we see in, in this exchange, in this whole interaction here, is that the promise is full of grace. Notice how many times God says in this exchange with David, I did this for you. I took you from the pastures. I have been with you wherever you've gone. I have destroyed your enemies from before you. I will designate a place for my people. I will give you rest from all your enemies. I will establish your kingdom forever. That exchange, that, that disclosure is, is so significant to understanding the promise and to understanding our relationship with God. It's Him-centered, not us-centered. Whenever we as a people, whenever we as individuals turn our focus and turn our emphasis from God to us, we lose our way. We, we lose our understanding. We lose our capacity to deal with life's problems. We lose our capacity for perspective. We lose our capacity for, for dealing with the circumstances and situations that can so often rob us of our joy. I'm convinced that one of the reasons that that people get bored with reading their, their, their Bible and don't really do it is because too often they're looking for themselves in it. And as their capacity to find themselves in a passage or a text wanes or falls or fails, their interest in that text also wanes or falls or fails. I can't find myself here. I don't even know what this passage is about. I, I don't understand what's going on here. How does this apply to me? I'm not really interested in it then. 
see our goal in digging into Scripture and reading Scripture is not to understand us. It's to understand God. It's to find God. It's to see God. And as you dig into Scripture and you're looking for God, then even those passages that seem so obscure and so out of the way can come to have some significance. Even the genealogies, y'all. You know what I'm talking about? The genealogies, he begat him and begat him, and you're, you're like, oh, I can't even say these names. What difference does it make? What difference does it make? What it makes is that that is a reflection of what? God's care and God's concern and God's preservation of his people through multiple generations, multiple situations. To see that long list of names, to see that long list of of, of people whom God has preserved is to say, our God is not in it for the short haul. Our God is with us through multiple generations, multiple situations, multiple circumstances. Because our God is eternal himself. And he doesn't abandon us. Even in those times in our life when we don't see any necessarily explicit or or overt expressions of his power or his majesty, he's still there. He's still invested. He's still involved. He's still guiding. He's still providing. So we can look at those passages and say, look at the centuries of God's investment in his people. Look at the care, the concern, the focus he still has. Year after year, generation after generation. And so as we look at at this passage and we see all of these eyes, what we see is God communicating to us once again that the way things happen, the way things function is through grace. And this is such an important reminder to David at this point. Remember, David has just come in and says, I got to do something for you, God. I, I, I got I to build this, this temple. Tabernacle's not good enough. And I would suggest David's motivations are probably good. There, there's nothing hinted at anywhere in the scripture that suggests that, that David was trying to, to purchase approval from God or, or anything like that. He was simply motivated by the fact that I have great things. I want to do, do great things for God too. But God constantly wants us to remember that it's about him. That it's what he has done for us that gives us purpose, which is one of the things David's longing for here, right? He's at this period of rest in his life. I want purpose. I want something to do. I want something that, that causes my life to matter. And God comes in and he says, your life matters, but not because of some goal or some investment you made, your life matters because I've declared it to matter and I'm with you. And I want you to hear that this morning as you're, as you're here this morning because some of you are struggling with a sense of purpose. Some of you are struggling with a sense of, of direction. Some of you are struggling with what do I do? Where, where do I go? How do I understand things? What can I do to, to make my life better? What can I do to make God um Bless me more. There's nothing you can do that will add to God's love for you. 
And there's nothing you can do that will take away from God's love. That's our God. He is gracious. He is good. He has provided so many things. I wonder if, if you sat down this afternoon and looked at your life, what list would you create? Or what list would God create for you of the things he's done for you? Just like he did for David here. I've done this, and I've done this, and I've done this. We just came through this period of thanksgiving. Let me encourage you. Sometime this week, if not this afternoon, sometime this week, sit down and just write out all the things God has brought you through in your life. And start with salvation. That is itself an expression of ultimate grace. What must I do to be saved? It begins, it continues, it ends with God's grace. You can't do anything to earn salvation. What you do is surrender. You give up. You say, I am yours, God. Do with me what you will. And he, in his power, in his grace, in his majesty, redeems you, changes you, transforms you, makes you a new person, Scripture says. David wanted to do something for God, but God had already done all that was necessary. He doesn't need, God doesn't need our ideas. He doesn't need our agendas. He doesn't need our programs. He doesn't need us to, to dream up great plans for him. God sets the programs. God establishes the agenda. God is the one that we seek to glorify. How do I know the will of God for my life? The will of God for your life is to glorify him and to live with his purposes, his mind. And he has told you very clearly right here what his purposes, his plans, his desires for your life are. He's spoken to you already. We need to get used to doing that. The second thing we see about the promise is that it offers precious hope. Again, David is of the mindset, he's of the perspective here, I'm at rest, what can I do? How can I move forward? How can I do the things that give my life meaning? And God's overwhelming, clearest expression here is what? It doesn't end with you, David. It doesn't end with you. I'm going to give this hope, this dream you have to your son. He'll be the one who builds this temple you're thinking of and dreaming of. I'm going to give your kingdom to your descendants. And again, that is so significant, not just here at this moment of, of finding direction from the rest, but as David proceeds through the remainder of his life, and he makes some horrible, horrible, sinful decisions, this promise still remains. 
this promise still goes on. It doesn't end with you. There's still more for me to do. There's still more purposes for you to have. The mistakes that you've made, the decisions you've made, they are not the end of the story. The great things you've done, the tasks you've accomplished, they are not the end of the story. And each and every one of us here has a legacy that we will leave. Husbands, what's your legacy to your family? How are you leading them? How are you directing them? Are you pointing them to Christ? Is Christ the priority in your home? Or have other things taken the place? We live in a culture that no longer supports the Christian mindset. It used to be unthinkable. I remember I grew up in Arizona, which Arizona is not part of the Bible Belt. Okay? But even out there, it was unthinkable to have a practice on Wednesday nights, a baseball practice. Unthinkable. You get your schedule for games and practices and stuff, and Wednesday night was left wide open. Why? Because even out there in the non-Bible Belt Southwest, people knew that's when people are going to be in church. You're wasting your time scheduling and practicing. Now we have events and so forth and all these other things that are happening on Sunday mornings. Not Wednesdays. That's not even an issue now. Wednesdays are gone. Sunday mornings. And I'm not saying you shouldn't participate in things that happen on Sunday mornings and so forth. But what I'm saying is simply this. We live in a society that no longer supports the Christian ethic, the Christian mindset, the Christian culture. And so we have to be very careful as parents, as, as husbands, to guide our families in such a way that they see that the church, that Christ, that life before God is still an essential part of who we are. And for too long, husbands, men in the churches have, have shirked their responsibilities. Thank God for our women who have stepped up and who have stepped in and who have invested themselves and who have so often kept families together when families would otherwise fall apart. But ladies, what are your commitments? What are your focus? You're not off the hook just because you have a history of doing great things and preserving the church. Where are you headed in the future? What is your priority? What legacy are you leaving? Our church is, what, 104? Yeah? We're 104 years old this past September, I think. What legacy are we leaving as a church? When I came as uh, to, to interview as a pastor, which, by the way, two days ago was the anniversary of me coming in view of a college. When I came, one of the questions I asked the committee, what is Port Caddo known for? 
how does the city think about Port Caddo Baptist Church? What are you known for? And there were some there were some some great answers in terms of things that we do that churches should do. But one of the, the biggest answers and kind of threw me back for a little bit, really, to be honest, was we're known for our softball. And sure enough, we we got our we got our trophy case over here in the Fellowship Hall, just full of softball trophies. And and let me be clear, I love softball. Until I threw my shoulder out, I was all about softball. I get it. But is that really ultimately the legacy we want as a church? We should be known for things of eternal value. But too often we have, and I'm guilty of this as well, we have put our own temporal concerns, our own temporal focuses ahead of the eternal thing. And understanding that God is one who grants hope, who gives hope, who says it doesn't end with you, is to understand not just that, man, I have hope for tomorrow. Which we need a little bit of that right now, don't we? We look at our culture, we look at our situation, and we're like, oh my goodness, where's this all going? I wonder about my children what they'll have to deal with over the next couple decades. You know, I'm getting close to retirement. I'm going to be able to, if I had to, if I had to, I could walk away from things right now and live fine. So I'm at the stage in my life where I'm kind of, I'm kind of where David is. I'm kind of set. But I wonder about my children. I worry about my children. What are they going to face? What are they going to deal with? What are they going to be confronted with those college students. I look at them in class and I, I wonder that. Where's this all going for them? What, what's this going to be like? What's this world going to be like? Let I me mean, just say, God is in control. Whatever fears, whatever doubts, whatever worries may come into my mind, I trust Him. And I know he's in charge. That's hope. But on the other side of that hope, on the other side of that finding peace and, 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 and comfort in knowing the future is in his hands is what is the challenge that I have been given to leave a legacy that points to him. It doesn't point to me. At the, the end of my tenure here at Port Cattle, whenever that is, and I hope that's several decades down the road or whatever. I hope it's a while. Let me put it that way. I hope the word that's spoken about me is not he was a great preacher or a great pastor or whatever. I want to be those things. But I hope that's not the word that's said about me. I hope the word said about me is he preached a great God. He served a great God. He lived a life that revealed a great God. That's the hope. That's the heart of the promise. At Christmas morning, as we'll see as we as we 
play these, these other promises out over the next couple of weeks. We have the Savior of the universe, the King of kings, lying in a manger. A stable. A dirty, filthy place. But he's the light of the world. He's the hope of humanity. He's the future of all that is. That hope is embodied in him. That hope is expressed here. The last thing I want to point out about this promise is that it's not limited by our failures. I've already mentioned David's failures. But one of the things I, I want to focus in on here is the nature of the promise here. When God makes this promise to David, he says what? I'm going to establish your throne forever. There's no ifs. There's no unlesses. I know it's not a word. I just thought I'd throw it out there. there. There's no qualifiers. It's an unconditional promise. David, in you, through you, this kingdom's going to last forever. But what I find interesting is if you turn to, to 1 Kings, and the promise is restated to Solomon, suddenly there's a condition on it. I will establish your throne, I will establish your kingdom, I will establish your work, if you walk in my ways. So is it a conditional promise or an unconditional promise? Yes. And this is why this is important, because God is what? He's a God who holds us accountable. And an unconditional promise can so often slip into, well, I can do whatever I want. You hear that all the time about believers. Man, I, I pray, or about people, man, I prayed that prayer. I'm good to go. I prayed the, the sinner's prayer. I got my ticket to heaven. And they never walk into the church. They never give God a second thought. They, they never give any sort of uh, perspective or understanding of how God affects their life. I just want you to say, that's not salvation. That's not the biblical expression of what it means to be a believer, what it means to be a Christian. If you've met Jesus, you've been changed. If you've been changed, he's going to matter to you. But we tend to take these eternal promises, the, the security of the believer, the, the, the everlasting life of John 3.16, and we, and we tend to minimize them or use them as loopholes, so to speak. That's what an unconditional promise can often do. But God is what? God's going to hold us accountable. And so with the line of David, what? As they walked further and further away from God, as they abandoned God, as they turned their back on God, what? God's going to hold them accountable. And what? Eventually you get 587, 586 B.C. And what? There's no longer somebody sitting on the throne of David. And Israel is in captivity in Babylon and back in Egypt and spread out throughout the world. 
What happened to God's promise to David? Well, there we see the, the acting out of his promise to Solomon. If you do these things. The failures of David's descendants led to a loss of the throne. And from 587 B.C. on to today, there has not been a descendant of David sitting on the throne of Israel. What happened to that eternal promise? It didn't go away. It didn't go away. One of the things you see the prophets begin to do is they, they begin to make accounts for that. They begin to make statements and expressions that, that allude to that. So that, for instance, in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, it says, One who's coming who will be from the shoot of Jesse. Who's Jesse? Jesse's David's father, right? Why on earth would Isaiah, in this messianic promise, say one's coming who is from the shoot of Jesse and not from the shoot of David? Why would he go that step back? Why would Micah highlight Bethlehem as a place where the Messiah is going to be born? Why wouldn't he go to Jerusalem? Why wouldn't the descendant of David on the throne in Jerusalem be the promise? I mean, God's certainly capable of doing that, right? God could have easily reestablished the Davidic throne so that Jesus, when he comes, he's sitting on it. There in Jerusalem, in power. What the prophets are telling us is that this promise with the birth of Solomon split in two. And one follows the conditional route with Solomon, the punishment, the exile, and so forth. But one maintains that unconditional expression here to David. And that one day there would be one who comes, who what? Who's a new David. He's from the shoot of Jesse, not from the shoot of David, because he's a new David. He's born in Bethlehem, not Jerusalem, because he's a new David. You have all these expressions. You go through all the prophecies, and I can't list them all. We don't have time. But there, over and over again, there are these emphases that say the one who's coming is not just a descendant of David. He is a new David. Why? Because that new David is the recipient of the unconditional promise of God here. And the only one who can do that is one who's eternal. And this is the really the first clue we get in, in the promises concerning the Savior who's coming that he would be divine in nature. It's going to become more explicit in some of the, our other subsequent patches that we'll look at. But this is the one that really kind of emphasizes the eternality. Jesus is God. He is the fulfillment of this promise. He is the centerpiece of God's plan. Before the foundation of the world, God had determined he would come. He would die. And he would rise again. Here you have these hints of exactly how that's going to play out.
So God's promise is what? It's eternal. It's unconditional. It's not limited by the failures of David's descendants. And let me just say to you, God's promise to you is not conditioned by your failures either. I firmly believe, for lack of a better way of putting it, in the one saved, always saved. The world didn't give it to me. The world can't take it away. I didn't earn it. I can't abandon it. It's God's gift to me. And God's call on your life is a significant part of that gift. Every one of you has a call. Every one of you has a, a role. And just let me reiterate something that I've said many times before. That when God called you, he already knew about your stupidity. He already knew about your mistakes. He already knew about your failings and your limitations. Nothing you've done, nothing you're going to do is a surprise to him. It's all factored into your calling. The question is simply, will you respond in a way that realizes that the promise, the calling, the transformation is all about him and not about you? Whatever life brings you, whether it's relative obscurity or worldwide fame, if you're doing it for God's glory, you keep that at the center of your calling, your longing, your desire, your work, your efforts, your attitudes, then you will have lived a life that is the epitome of the good and faithful servant. A servant doesn't point to themselves, they point to their master. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you. I thank you for this day. I thank you for each person here. God, I pray that you just work in hearts and minds, that you would direct us and guide us. God, I pray that if there's anyone here who does not have a relationship with you, that you'd use this time, this moment, this circumstance to draw them to you. They would respond in faith. I pray for my brothers and sisters here, those who have committed themselves to walk in a way that honors you. Lord, help us to, to walk in the grace, in the hope, in the freedom that your call, your promise offers to us. We love you, God. We praise you. It's in Christ's name I pray.